I'm Tom Hall. My guest today is an artist who defies categorization and whose creative outlets span a number of genres. Dessa is a rapper, a composer, a poet, a writer, and the host of Deeply Human, a podcast about science. She's given TED Talks and speeches about entrepreneurship and art and other topics. She's the author of a memoir and essays called My Own Devices. Her latest book is a collection of poetry with a wild title. It's called Tits on the Moon. This is a composition called Velodrome. Dessa is performing live here with the Minnesota Orchestra. And on this archive edition of Midday, let's listen to a conversation I had with Dessa in November when she was in town serving as an artist in residence at Johns Hopkins University and giving a concert at the Auto Bar in Baltimore. She joined me in Studio A. It's great to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Tom. I love that tune. Thanks. And I love a bunch of other tunes that we're going to get a chance to hear. Um, Of the many uh, weird and wild things that you've done Mm -hmm. in your career, um, you guest hosted for Jen White, whose show 1A is on right before this one. Um, So you know how this, you know, radio thing goes. Um, If you were me... Uh, and you were hosting the show today. Where where would you start? Where, where would we begin this conversation? Oh, man. I mean, I'm always a sucker, if I can, to try to draw out anecdotes that sort of like, you know, gently nudge the visiting guest off their talking points, which because we're in studio, you can see I have in front of me. I've scribbled the bulleted <laughs> list of stuff I don't want to forget to say. Um, but also, you know, I'm like relatively new to live radio. I've done a lot of recorded stuff. So it's still like hypnotic to me to watch, you know, your left arm raise so that in the control room, you know, the music is rising and crescendoing at just the right moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking notes. <laughs> One of the things I want to ask you about is, and we'll get to some fun a- anecdotes that get you uh. off your talking points, I promise. But um, because, you, you know, you're a writer of essays, you're a singer of songs, you're a rapper, you used to be a slam poet. Yeah. Um, I t- had a conversation, a few conversations, with a terrific poet named Paul Muldoon. Oh, yeah. He teaches at Princeton. He won the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, he's great. And he talked about the difference between lyrics and poetry, song lyrics and poetry. And he's a musician. He has a band. Yeah. And they play, they, they write music to the lyrics that he writes. Right? And he said... And I've always thought this is really fascinating. He said that the difference is poetry has its own music. And lyrics need music. And I just wonder how that struck you. <laughs> well, part of me feels like, dang, we're... we're um starting with some heavy hitting and that I am afraid to go against Paul Paul <laughs> Muldoon air, but, you know, I, I listen to him a lot as the as the editor of, of the New Yorker um, poetry section but I I tend to I would gently offer an alternative account which I think has to do with the fact that you know when I work across forums whether it's you know in prose stuff for the page and stuff for the stage differ in a couple of really important ways but I think among them is that the creator has control 
of the temporal dial in a form like music making or film. I get to decide how long the thing is. Yeah, you right? control time. Exactly that. Mm-hmm. And so I can decide, like, is this is this melody uh, interesting enough to be repeated three times, to be repeated four times? Does it buy its... Does it earn its keep like for a 30 second visit or for a 90 second visit before its welcome is worn? Whereas the, the consumer, you know, the reader, um, decides how long a, a poetry moment lasts or how long a painting lasts or how long their exposure with you know sculpture lasts. But I think also it's like, you know, we have something like what 13 punctuation marks uh, writing in English. If I'm performing something on stage, I mean, I have every possible register and vocal fry at my disposal to make particularly like a repeated phrase sound different whereas like I'm not a fan of poems that have like the same phrase like nine times in a row because it looks exactly the same whereas even like if you think of um Andre 3000 like the as a poem the word hey ya is super lousy but as a chorus it bangs because mm-hmm. he's he's got style points for days you know it's in the delivery that so much of that i think can be um infused with life where it really has to live in ink on the page music and i think this tune we just heard a little bit of your singing velodrome mm-hmm. is a perfect example of that because it sets an ambiance it sets a a mood and then you insert insight into that mood with mm. the lyrics. And I think sometimes music can enliven and uh, expand lyrics, even if they're crappy lyrics, you know? I mean, like yesterday, all my troubles were so far away. Now I need a place to hide away. Oh, I believe in yesterday. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go on a second date with that. Yeah, exactly. Except. Except you just take two notes. You know, and it becomes a profound work of art. So music does stuff to poetry, um, and or maybe does stuff to lyrics. I I don't know. So I, it's it's they are different animals. I think so too. And when you like, because you have a book of poems that's out, and so I just wonder if you approach those poems differently than the lyrics that you're going to set to music. I do, yeah, because I mean, even I think your your example was perfect with yesterday. That's something, a series of very simple rhyming phrases that look like so pedestrian on a notebook page can be um, really like deeply moving to to discerning adults, you know, when set. But I think in part it's because we would be um, approaching the lyric inappropriately if we were if we were judging it by poetry standards. Right. It's like they are slightly different. Is there a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram? Sure. But I think sometimes there's been an impulse in the past, I don't know, 10, 20 years to like try to exalt lyrics for proper respect by calling them poetry instead of exalting the form in its own right. We don't have to drag it across that that uh, boundary of discipline in an effort to pay it its good due. Yeah, I think that's really, really right on. I mean, because. It does elevate it. I mean, just applying the term art to anything For elevates real. it, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's an interesting component of your career and how you've put stuff together. Because as an artist, you know, you have a platform, and when people hear you say stuff, even if it's about science or mm-hmm. media or you gave a TED Talk about entrepreneurship, I guess, or, or a, a couple of speeches about that, 
it's like, oh, the artist is talking. Mm. So we got to listen to the artist, which I think is valid. I mean, artists should be paid attention to. But do you, how do you see the role of the artist then, you know, it, when it comes to these non-artistic things? Mm. I mean, in some ways, I think that there's like a, a pretty wide range of places within culture that an artist might situate him or herself. You know, I think of like Joan Baez, who who was like a favorite of my mom's and I got sure. to see her in concert and, and I'm a sucker for her. Um, she's not someone who, in interview, she didn't enjoy the, the term entertainer. You know, she understood her role to be, I, I would say, a, an agent of social change, um, but the way that she might fit into culture um, as opposed to Halsey or Lil Nas X or, you know, there, there's a pretty, like, wide swath, I think, of, of, of cultural roles that are available for the artist. But I would say that by virtue of being an artist, it doesn't excuse somebody from the kind of regular moral mandates that all of us are subject to by virtue of being people. Like, yo, don't be a jerk. Don't make things way worse for everybody. Uh, please do be mindful of how your actions affect other people yeah. on the planet. You yeah. know what I mean? So, you hear that, Kanye? Yeah. yeah. Right, right. <laughs> no, I'm sure he doesn't. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, tough one. Tough one there. Yeah. yeah. What about the fact that so many artists, um, and I think this is truer of folks uh, older than you, people in mm. a different generation. So many artists are, you know, sort of forcibly pigeonholed into being one thing. Um, I remember 20 years ago, I uh, was on a panel with a bunch of arts types, and somebody said, um, I'm an artist and I'm platform agnostic. Mm. I don't care what platform I'm working in. Everything I do is a creative act. Mm. Um, whereas before, it's like, okay, you're a poet, you're a sculptor, you're a musician, and you can't be all three of those things, yeah. you know? Yeah. But you're a lot of these things, and that's a cool trick to pull off. Is it? Is it? Are, are you, you know, subject to criticism for, for, you know, sticking your hand in all sorts of different pies? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. And in some ways, you know... Um, trying to infuse the most generous attitude with those critics. I will say that I get the concern that if somebody like amasses some big or modest amount of social capital doing one thing, you know, you're a sculpture, right? And then four days later, you're like, you should check out my my um, my body spray that I'm also selling at these shows. Part of me is like, what are you doing? This feels like a grab. I'm mm -hmm. skeptical of your ability to deliver in a field in which you are unproven. So I I'm sensitive to that. On the other hand, I think that a lot of the forces that have really like concentrated the focus of artistic output have been industry forces and not artistic forces, which is to say, you know, early in my career, even with like a, a, a manager who's a friend, a dude I trust, I still dig him. He was just like, man, it's so hard to make any headway in any of these lanes that the idea of trying to do them all at once just, it just seems unlikely, like it might be time to focus. But for me, um, I, I haven't always been able to execute, but the idea was if I can do, if I can make it bulletproof, if I can make my offerings bulletproof and then slowly change lanes, signal my turn and say, hey, if you like the song, try the book. If you like the book, try the play. If you like the play and really try to, you know, limit my missed pitches so that 
I've got a good enough batting average that people are willing to take a field trip. Because there's this assumption that doing yeah. one would attenuate your, you know, capacity in the other. I remember years ago reading a horrible article in the Atlantic by this guy Leon Botstein, who's a conductor and a uh, sort of, you know, public intellectual. He's sure. the president of Bard College, and he was he eviscerated Leonard Bernstein. Uh, because he was a pianist and a composer and a conductor, and Leon kept saying, "You know, you got to pick one." Why? Because and he was really good at all three of those things. He says, "You got to pick one." I knew Mr. Bernstein, and and uh-huh. you know, to, the thought of it was just ridiculous for him to not do these other things that he was really, really good at. Plus, he was a very socially engaged person. I mean, you know, and I just never understood that argument that you know, because you're good at one thing, you can't also be good at other things. And I think in some ways, I think that's reflected not only in the way that we talk about like music making, but even the way we used to talk about music listening. Like mm. at least 20 years ago, you know, I was I, the genre or like the little tiny subgenre that I grew up in was called backpack rap. So it's like independent <laughs> rap where people often wore backpacks, <laughs> big headphones, but <laughs> hence the name. It's <laughs> a very narrow lane. But the idea that you, um, that you would like pop music was anthem. What, that wasn't allowed. But I think we all were secretly listening to and loving our pop music. I think before, like, um, I think people's social identities were and their, their fashion choices, I think, were much more tethered to a single genre. But that's not really how many of us listen to music either. Like, I, I am less interested in the question, in the answer to the question, what genre is this, than I am, like, is this good? Yeah. 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 Can you read us a poem before I we go to a break? Let's do this. You yeah. have this, um, you know, wild title for your your uh, poetry book, Tits on the Moon. And and these are poems that you actually wrote for a terrific reason. I've never heard of this before, and it's a really brilliant idea. Like, if stuff goes wrong on stage when you're playing a music job and you got to buy some time, you have poems at the ready. That's brilliant. I used to I used to just improvise, and it, believe me, it was less brilliant. <laughs> but it happens more than you think, oh, right? Oh boy, like, does it ever! The power goes out, or the string is broken. Yeah, totally. Uh, okay, so this is a brief one. This one is called the body. Most of your body is water. Also, most of your body is oxygen. Also, most of your body lives in darkness because it is the part of your body that is inside of your body. Some of the water that is your body will leak out through your skin at the gym. If you removed all of your DNA and piled it on the coffee table, it would weigh only about half a pound. Your body is yours for as long as you're around, but it will last a little longer than you do. Your body comes with thumbs that don't seem particularly special until somebody explains them to you. Your body is a spacesuit. You are not viable outside of it. Your skeleton is a puppet wrapped up in its own strings. Your life is a brief parole from non-existence. Your body is the holster for your name. You will have to share your name with many other people. You will probably share your body with some people too. There are only two alternatives to death, but we haven't discovered either of them yet. Love it. Just fantastic. I love it. Your skeleton is a puppet wrapped up in its own strings. Good stuff. Dessa is my guest. We'll have more with Dessa on the other side of a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. Here's another tune by Dessa. This is Call Off Your Ghost.
shirts and high heel shoes you cross the room just the decent thing to do make sure we've all been introduced you brought your new friend i brought mine shake hands pay courtesy it's due back if you've just joined us on this archive edition of midday i'm tom hall and we're listening to a conversation i had with the writer rapper and poet and composer dessa in november when she was here in town giving a concert and serving as an artist in residence for a few days at johns hopkins university before we get back to our conversation a little more music by dessa when president joe biden nominated janet yellen to be treasury secretary he joked that Lin-Manuel Miranda should write a musical about her. After all, she is the first woman to serve as the Secretary of the Treasury. Marketplace asked Dessa to give it a whirl. Here's what she came up with. Oh, who's yelling now? Who's yelling? Who's yelling now? Doves on the left, hawks on the right, cross-talk in the flock, trying to fight mid-flight. But here comes yelling with that inside voice. Never mind the mild manner, policies make noise. She's five foot nothing, but hand to God. She could pop a collar, she could rock a power bob. Bay Ridge represent, Brooklyn's in the cabinet. Damn, Janet, go and get it, fifth in line for president. She knows the kind of stimulus it takes to pass I heard she called the house in Christ. She's qualified. It only took a couple centuries, the first female secretary of the treasury. Don't want no tax evasion. All right, there it is. Who's Yelling Now? Written for Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen by my guest, Dessa. That's a hoot. That's just great. <laughs> it's great. She can nice. rock a bob. I mean, that's just, it's terrific. It's terrific. So you also uh, contributed to this thing called the Hamilton Mixtape. You had wrote a tune called Congratulations. Um, what I, I was unfamiliar with the Hamilton mixtape. Evidently, it's like was this big number one thing. Like twenty million people have streamed that tune from you. My brain exploded. Yeah, for me, this is like this is one of those uh, dream moments. You know, I think a lot of modern careers like they don't have a lot of big breaks in air quotes, but they have a lot of like significant fractures. And <laughs> um, when Lin Manuel, who wrote Hamilton decided that he was going to put together a mixtape where like pop artists recorded a lot of the songs from from the uh from the musical he called me but like the other people that he's calling are like usher like <laughs> it's just like known entity after known entity random me and then like a bunch of famous people and so i was delighted and also uh, i'll just say that he wrote the lyrics and i was um, thrilled to be able to to record them so so yeah that was my that was my cover essentially of his work yeah mm-hmm. let's listen to it a little bit this is congratulations from the hamilton mixtape by dessa Congratulations. You have invented a new kind of stupid. A damage you can never undo kind of stupid. And open all the cages at the zoo kind of stupid. Truly, you didn't think this through kind of stupid. Let's review. You took a rumor a few, maybe two people knew, and refuted it by sharing an affair of which no one has accused you. I begged you to take a break. You refused to. So scared of what your enemies might do to you. But you're the only enemy you ever seem to lose to. You know why Jefferson can do what he wants? He doesn't dignify schoolyard taunts with a response. So yeah, congratulations. You've redefined your legacy. Congratulations. 
Terrific. And one of the things that I really like about a lot of the the stuff that I've listened to by you is that it doesn't feel layered. There's a lot of, well, there's a lot of folks who's like, okay, we're going to start with the rhythm section. We're going to start with the beat, you know, and then we're going to put this Mm. on top of it. And then we're going to put that other thing on top of that. And then we're going to sing the tune. And then we're going to sing the tune a third higher. and And it just feels like every track is, is, you know, globbed on. This seems really organic to me. Um, and I don't know if how you approach that. Like the production value of that tune is hugely high. Oh, that's to my ears. Super at least. kind. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in part, it's it's largely due to the, I think there's a couple of guys who I, I o- almost always work with in everything I do. One of them is named Laserbeak, a member of the Doomtree Collective that I'm part of. And another is Andy Thompson, who is this phenomenally musical dude you know works in pop music works um works in classic some classical stuff he arranged a lot of the um all of the arrangements on my record with the minnesota orchestra but he's he's just one of those multi-talented dudes you know who like picks up an instrument he's never seen before and 20 minutes later is is working through something impressive and and i think when we work together uh one of the things we try to do as we're like listening to the you know the very rough mixes of a record is just to make sure we're not repeating formulas particularly at the starts of songs you know what i mean so if, they, if we've got a really long intro here let's come in immediately with the lyrics here or could we do a, a deceptive cadence so that you realize only a few bars in oh actually the one is in a different place than i thought so uh so yeah i'm, I'm looking to work with a really good team on that stuff and thank you mm-hmm. your dad's a musician right He's yeah a, and he plays a lot of early music He's a lute player is that right yes yeah, so when i was a kid my dad played lute around the house and the lute if you can't picture it is like the elizabethan you know precursor for guitar so it's that one that you'd see like on a tapestry with a gazillion more strings on a guitar bunch of strings and like a rounded back uh it's quiet it's pretty and he also played you know like classical acoustic guitar as well yeah so those are some of the sounds that were in my house it's like him like the sound of a of a finger sliding quickly down the fretboard on a on a nylon string that little noise was a big part of like my early recollection and that kind of like sad stuff that he'd play and I was too little to like know who that was but Paganini and and Bach and that was part of it and then it was also like Michael Jackson and Whitney and Sade you know were the kind of musicians on our speakers yeah what did you study I mean to become a poet a rapper a writer a musician blah 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 what did you actually like, did you go to college? Go to did, I have no yeah, idea. I yeah, mean, yeah. You, usually you're supposed to ask questions where you know the answers to. <laughs> I have no earthly idea what the answer to that question is. I did go to college. Um, I went to one of those like public high schools that had a magnet program that was um, in Minneapolis. Sorry, yeah, in Minneapolis. And it was called the International Baccalaureate Program. And I went because I thought it sounded fancy and I wanted to be smart, but it was actually like just really hard it was it was harder than my college career ended up being so there i i got like my first taste of philosophy really dug it and i majored in philosophy in college and so in terms of studying music 
Is that something that you did? You I do did. music theory? I and didn't know. Blah, 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 and you, you know, practice the piano four hours a day. And I didn't. I, I would. I signed up for like. There's this spot by my house where I live in, or by my apartment where I live in New York, maybe six blocks away, that teaches children how to play piano. And I went and I just gave them five hundred bucks. So next time I'm on the show, the answer will be yes. I know music <laughs> theory, but I don't know it yet. Well, it's you know it could be a helpful thing. Oh my to gosh, know, absolutely! But also, you know, you're doing quite fine without it. Paul I mean, McCartney doesn't read music. He did still. Oh, well, I didn't track that. Yeah, okay. he and he, there's a music school that he runs and stuff. You know, ah. and, but but he um, he wrote an oratorio for chorus and orchestra, hmm. and he basically gave it to another guy to who notate? he dictated and and he wrote it down. You know, yeah. But you wrote you've written stuff. I mean, you played with the Minnesota Orchestra. I mean, that's a big band. Yeah. I mean, so how do you conceive yeah. those kinds of huge, you know, musical canvases? Yeah. I mean, okay, so at the beginning of my career when I was making mostly rap music, like that the way that music gets made is different than it happens in a band. So very often you're like listening to beats a lot of rappers are listening to the same beats and you're rushing to be like, this one's dibs, essentially. Like, right. I want track number four. Um, and then as I've as I've kind of moved through my career, I, I do play a little piano badly. Like, I wouldn't do it on stage because I can't think clearly while doing it. But um, but to write scraps of new tunes, I'll, I'll do that. And I'll just record it like on the voice memo function on my, on my iPhone, essentially. And then... Um, I'll write, you know, background melodies or maybe some ideas for strings or bass by singing them and maybe pitching my own voice down, um, you know, into my computer and stuff. But again, like Laserbeak and Andy Thompson, the two dudes with whom I work, they, they um, particularly for that Minnesota Orchestra show, I mean, Andy Thompson like burned down essentially the production on record and was like, I don't want to rely on any of this. We don't, we're not going to play any tracks on stage. We're going to rebuild it from nothing. And he did. Yeah. Let's listen to one of the tunes you did with the Minnesota Orchestra. This is a live performance of a tune called Dixon's Girl. Dessa. Shot at Mississippi television told us which roads they were closing. There goes a rapture, and everybody knew you as the wife of a famous man. Everybody who knew said, There goes Dixon's girl again, even the walls are getting closer. When she plays the piano real soft. Dixon's girl, music of my guest on this archive edition of Midday, Dessa. I'm Tom Hall. Here's more of our conversation. That's intriguing in every measure to me. I mean, as a musician, you know, maybe I'd listen to stuff, you know, like with a part of me that says, oh, I wish I'd thought of that. But it, it's, it, it moves from phrase to phrase and, and measure to measure with real purpose and real uh, an arc that is really great. And I wonder if you're 
conscious of that as you're mm. putting it together, you know? Do you think structure and stuff, long-term, you know, big, long arcs, or do you put this bit that goes next to this bit mm. next to that? Because I think either way works, but just I'm intrigued by the structure of that. Yeah, I would say that, like, when I'm working with production, so not with the, with the orchestra, which is Andy's world, but when I'm working with production, I tend to think of it as a as a pack of playing cards that I've got. Like, I've got some exciting things that are going to happen, and I have to make sure to meter them out in such a way that no part of the song is let to run too long without something interesting and surprising, but be mindful of the ratio of repeated material, like a chorus, right, and unfamiliar material, and to try to get, like, to try to titrate that, you know, the savory and the sweet, such that there's something every few seconds that's worth pressing your headphone closer to your ear for yeah that that's the dream anyway does yeah. that always work no yeah right yeah. sure of course and and is yeah. that a whole mm. bunch of trial and error i mean there's the two sort of you know in classical music there's the two paradigms of composition there's mozart who the stuff just flowed out of you know mm. without thinking i mean he could just you know it just he just wrote it and there's beethoven who just struggled over everything i mean he wrote an opera and he wrote four different overtures for it he just couldn't figure out what the right one was he was there's a lot of scratch outs in Mo, in, in beethoven manuscripts there's no scratch outs in mozart Did, which which the side ladder, are you closer to the, the I'm I'm all the way past Beethoven. Like it's just, <laughs> I mean, I have uh, the, for the song. Like one of the songs I'm, I'm I ended up being very proud of, but was just so hard to write. Was a song called Annabelle, and I remember at one point making a flow chart. Like I, you know, opened that part of like my, you know, in my word processing document, there were arrows and like if this four bar, then this four bar. I mean, it looked like I was preparing an annual report. Yeah. It <laughs> it gets it gets for me anyway pretty grimy. Really really slow going and then feels fantastic when it's done. Yeah. Yeah, when yeah. it's done. When it it's does. done. Yeah, having having written a song is way better than writing a song. Oh boy, isn't it ever. Yes. Yeah. Dessa she was in Baltimore a while back performing at the Auto Bar and working with students at Johns Hopkins University as an artist in residence. On this archive edition of Midday, we're listening to a conversation we had when she stopped by Studio A. I'm Tom Hall. Quick break, and then we'll have more with Dessa. Here's a bit of her latest single, Blush. You like it when I wear my hair down, but I say that way it just gets in my eyes. You say that's exactly what you like so much. I think that sums us up sometimes. I'll be your favorite me, mostly carefree. Laugh seasonally, but what you can't see in my routine is how hard it gets to keep the heartbeat clean. I can see the problem clearly, clearly. I can see the simple fact is that you like me. I'm a moon for you Give you just the good side Save you all the best lines Sometimes I wish that I wasn't mute to you Could see you and go right by Pull myself away from your high tide I'll be fine again by morning light I set a timer to remind myself Nights are just sentimental for me Why? 
Of all of the people on the planet can think of anybody else I know we're supposed to keep it light But no one can pick their appetite So I think I'm done up on the tightrope Welcome back to Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is Dessa. She's a rapper, a writer, a poet, and a composer. She's the host of a science podcast called Deeply Human. Her latest book of poetry is called Tits on the Moon. Here's a tune called Talking Business, which she describes as a murder ballad with no verbs. Champagne, fake name, number on a napkin Check please, room key, more coke for the captain Lipstick on the filter, sign out on the door Seven hours to turn down services on the second floor Knock, knock, ten o'clock, housekeeping with breakfast Aw, shot, coffee hot, airborne in the French press Face down on the bedspread, color nearly half dead Still recognizable as a regular guest Missing wallet, missing watch Something in this tumbler probably stronger than the double scotch Dizzy talk with busy cops But no mention in the paperwork of the stash cost, the cash losses No prints, only hint, blonde wig in the bathtub APB on radio, safe patrol on the backup Nothing on the register, no plates on the rental car Needle in the hay, girl like a shadow in the dark but Nine miles away, in the bathroom at a Texaco Color contact lenses, freehand freckles, money in the pantyhose Ten minutes from SFO, cop at the counter with a photo of a brown-eyed girl in different clothes Cash fare, ride share, taxi to the airport Gate 5 on time, baggage just a jam sport Business class, a woman cola Guiltless sleep to Mexico And on the beach like any other Rich resort is doctor's orders Music of Dessa That's a tune called Talking Business You're listening to an archive edition of Midday because our show was pre-recorded, we aren't taking any new calls or emails today. So here's a little fan mail. I have scheduled an entire vacation to Minneapolis next summer around your next orchestra show with the Minneapolis or the Minnesota Orchestra. So add Minnesota Tourism Diplomat <laughs> to your list of great many talents. So that's well. from Mary Alice Yeski. So Mary Alice, have a great time in Minneapolis. See you there, Mary Alice. Mm-hmm. Minneapolis is a great arts town. It is. I mean, it's really, it's terrific arts town. The orchestra's wonderful, but there's just, you know, there's a theater every two blocks, and um, there's a lot of great choral music there. Yep. There's a lot of great pop music. There's a lot of great... A lot um, of writing stuff, too. Yeah, you know, some great literary stuff. centers. Yeah, and... Louise Erdrich has her bookstore there. Yeah. yeah. She's been on the show a few times. Yeah. Um, it, it It's an interesting place also because it's white as can be. <laughs> so as a rapper, as a white mm-hmm. rapper from Minneapolis, you know, I have black friends who actually, I, a, a black friend who lived in Minneapolis who moved away. Because it was too white. Moved to Philly, who said, really? I just can't yeah. stand it, you know? Yeah. And and when I go to Minneapolis, and I've been blessed to be able to work there a bunch of times, I love it. But it's weird, because I is. live in Baltimore, which is a majority black city. It is weird. So um, your your affinity and your, 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 your draw to rap music in particular in a really white place, how did that happen? Yeah, so I would just say also, like, I'm thinking like a lot of Midwest cities is that yeah, mm-hmm. you could spend a lot of time like in South Minneapolis and come to the conclusions that it's really right and would be correct. But it's also overrepresented because we're really segregated. 
you know? So it's like, it's like a Milwaukee sort of. It's like, okay, we've got just like really record setting degrees of, of segregation for like North and South Minneapolis. Um, that said, I, so my mom was Puerto Rican, came from New York to Minnesota when I was a kid, you know, and married my dad, the lutenist. And I was sort of like a, I was, I was a tough, very tough teenager to raise, very um, existent, a lot of existential angst. And when I was like about the age of finishing college, um, so 20 or something, uh, I got into the slam poetry scene, which in Minneapolis, like a lot of other cities, like intersects in a meaningful way with the hip hop scene. And there was this one group, Doomtree. Somebody handed me their CD. I thought it was so unusual. It was like they would use takes that everybody else would have thrown away. There was one take I remember where someone was like inflating a bike tire and it burst and you could hear the rapper go, oh my God, and then just go back into the verse. And it's, <laughs> it sounded so cool to me. And um, it was in large part because of them that I that I started rapping. And so I joined, I was invited to join that collective a couple of years later. And that collective then does what? I mean, why is it important for you to mm. remain a member of a collective? Oh, I see. Yeah. You know, I just wonder what, what, uh, yeah. why that's a good thing. I mean, and I'm sure it is. Yeah, I think in some ways it just, like, the cohort model, well, I mean, no one would call it the cohort model. That's just me being nerdy, push up my glasses. But, like, the idea that artists, very often, musical artists, very often, I think, seek the company of other talented people in the same field in part it's for you know the ability to like rebound information and, and ideas off of one another but i think it's also like a lot of chosen family stuff you know people picking their own groups to to live with for a while or to make meaningful big friendships and and also it's like you know you're you're up later than most people with jobs and you're living kind of left of center it i don't know i guess it becomes kind of a lifestyle thing too yeah yeah, well, I mean, I, and you can get a lot of energy and ideas, too, I would imagine. And also, I think because it's indie, there's, like, so much stuff that isn't music that must be done. That yeah. you can, you know, that, that to be able to convi- combine forces. So, like, okay, well, Sims is really great at building um, stage sets. Okay, and Laserbeak has become great at running the business. And I'm pretty good at press releases. And so we can trade and combine those skill sets for the benefit of all the ships docked in that port. Given that you have your own uh, fleet of ships docked in a whole bunch of different docks, what what does being successful mean? Oh, it's a tough one. I mean, I think the popular answer, oh God, like there's what I want to want and then there hmm. is what I want, right? Um, I have come to realize that I think like humans, not just musicians, but I think humans like are want machines. We habituate to almost anything really, right? Like the lifestyle that I have now would have seemed, um, you know, with no roommate even, just like an unimaginable luxury, you know, 15 and 20 years ago or whatever. And similarly, I imagine that if I were to be able to graduate one rung up, I will habituate to that too. But for me, I think it's, always been more about trying to find a wide distribution for my work than it hasn't been about like amassing tangibles right so i would much rather you know in the in the would you rather that we play in the van i would rather have like a million fans and make 50k a year than it make than have 50,000 fans and make a million bucks a year so for me i think that's one of the big metrics is how many people even if how many people can i at least audition my stuff for 
not everybody's going to bite at everything. I get that. But as the indie artist, I think that is the current that you are constantly swimming against is how do I get it out? I met a guy in Toronto and I'm blanking on his name. This was 20 years ago. And he had a great tune called 50 Fans Can't Be Wrong. <laughs> I just knocked over the pop screen. It was, yes. it was terrific. You know, it was a great Oh, my God. I'm comment. writing that down. It's a great comment about, you know, what it means to have made it, you know. <laughs> 50 fans can't, can't be, be wrong. wrong. You know? um, well, you got a lot more than 50. You're, you're doing great on that you know, with your 20 million streams of uh, just one tune. Um Speaking of, of, of habituating and, and humanity, you have this podcast that the BBC produces. Um, at least they did two seasons of it. It's called Deeply Human. Um, you're a self-described science nerd. Um, tell us about that mm. affinity and that interest. Yeah, you know, I think I think some of it might just be elemental and kind of died in the wool in that, like, I love chocolate milk cheap milk chocolate i love it and i love science and i'm not sure that i had that much to do with either of those they're directly references. related I'm, <laughs> I'm certain of it <laughs> um but yeah i think i think i i don't quite have a head for physics or for chem but like for life sciences and bio stuff yeah i, I think i've always leaned into that why does that why do plants lean towards the window right um why Why do, at least in our culture, like, why do women have longer hair than men as a kid, right? Like, has it always been the case that, that pink was a gendered color? Oh, yeah, but it used to be for dudes. Like, um, I think so much of the world in which we live has been designed um, by by either social or biological forces. And I've always, I guess I've always been curious to, you, to find out why. You did a TED Talk, which mm. I found just terrific. Um, and it was, you did an experiment on yourself about how to fall out of love. Now, today, by the way, as it just mm. turns out, is my 36th wedding anniversary. Hey. And I'm very much in love, and, mm. and so I'm not interested in, uh, I don't need this advice personally, but you had a breakup that took a long time to get over, as you shared in this TED Talk, mm. but you had, you had a scientific solution to the problem. Um, explain just briefly for folks who haven't been able to look it up yet. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think, you know, after not being able to get over this guy for two years and then five years and then 10, just for a really long amount of time, A, I was miserable. And B, I was sort of embarrassed about being miserable because it totally ran like counter to a lot of the rest of the, like the feminist way that I want to lead my life. Like you have so much going on. It's rad. Why are you so torn up about this one dude? And so, um, I wasn't able to get over it all the normal ways that people do like, you know, find a hobby and hang out with your friends. And, and I moved away and, and so I remember yeah, you did. You went down the list. You did. did all the right things. Yeah, I checked the boxes. It's just I did. I just you're supposed to check. And then I remember I might have Googled something like how do you fall out of love, like on a on a lark. And I ended up watching this TED talk by a woman named um, Dr. Helen Fisher, and she mentioned that she had been able to send lovesick people essentially into like an fMRI machine, and and reliably like there was this a location in their brains that seemed to be associated with big romantic love and that blew my mind that there might be a like a neuroanatomical spot a correlate for that feeling so i thought okay like if i could figure out where my love was then maybe i could 
blasted into bits. Yeah, <laughs> so that was the that was the objective. Yeah. And you say there's a great line yeah. in the TED talk. You say, "I knew it was all in my head, and now I know exactly where." <laughs> I mean, they actually you know pinpointed the the spot. You yeah. know, there's a there's an institute here at Johns Hopkins at the Hopkins Brain Science Institute called the International Arts and Mind Lab. So as you're you know, applying science to, you know, those creative emotional things, mm. there are people applying arts to scientific things. Um, and there is a creative contribution to be made to science. Um, have you have you thought a lot about that or been involved in, in any of that, you know, sort of going both ways down the bridge? I have, yeah. I mean, I think that... To the credit of researchers, I think there is like more overlap than there used to be. Um, you know, I think of a, an artist that I toured with last month, um, Open Mike Eagle, a rapper out of L.A. and Chicago, who was in an MRI machine um, rapping. So you can see, you know, all, all of the, the 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 anatomical structures that are involved in that. And and I I think that we are starting to z- dissolve a little bit. What had been imagined is this like totally impermeable partition between like okay here's the smartsy pants empirical stuff and here's the creative stuff. But you know it's like that that those kinds of thoughts are housed in this in all of us. And I I don't think that they that they need be quite as siloed as they have been. So it's fun to see that stuff emerge. Yeah, it is. And and. You know, there's also a lot to celebrate about science. I mean, today, this morning, you know, one thirty in the morning, the Artemis rocket went out. It's the largest rocket ever. I mean, it's headed to the moon. You know, we got a COVID vaccine, mm-hmm. like, overnight, mm-hmm. you know, compared to all the other ones that we had. Um, the, the stuff people are doing in DNA, there's a lot to be happy about. And I wonder if if all of those things to be happy about you know, will will contribute to the muse for for you and many other artists about you know where we are in the world. I mean, you talked earlier about I was writing all these depressing songs, you know, um, but but there's there's a lot to celebrate as well. I, I agree, and I I think that sometimes even if it's an unspoken premise, there's the idea that to understand something or investigate something in a scientific lens is to be necessarily reductionist. Right. It's to it's to dishonor or set aside anything that seems like fundamentally magical about it. And I don't think that's true at all. I don't think that understanding like, for example, um, you have a cocktail at a bar. OK, you've got a blood alcohol level of, of 0.3. That doesn't that's the scientific account of what it feels like to have a one drink buzz. The subjective account is I'm kind of lit. This is fun. Like those two can be overlapped to better understand the phenomenon. They don't necessarily conflict. The rapper, writer, poet, and composer, Dessa. We spoke a while back when she was in town as an artist in residence at Johns Hopkins University and giving a concert at the Auto Bar in Baltimore. That's it for us today on this archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for joining us. Let me leave you with one more tune from this terrific artist, Dessa. This is Fire Drills. Something got confused If it was from a two that we were running I've seen Gibraltar I've seen the Taj Mahal Soweto, Aya, Sophia Chef Shao and paints the walls blue I've played to full rooms I've played the full two Burning through the bottoms of a pair of new boots Cut my hair, tape my wrists down A woman on her own must be from out of town Funny you don't know the concessions that you're making Until you catalog them And by then they're many And your battle-hardened heat makes Liquid of the asphalt 
keepsakes and parking tickets on the dashboard. I'm here to file my report as the vixen of the wolf pack. Tell patient zero he can have his rib back. Everybody all the time, stay close, hems low, safe and